Lyrics in that song are so true, aren't they? Christmas changes everything. Good morning, if you're a guest of ours, my name's Craig, and uh, I get the privilege to kick off our Christmas series called The Imperfect uh, Christmas uh, with a message entitled The Scarlet Thread. And uh, the reason for that title is, is twofold. One, we're going to be introduced to a lady who kind of takes uh, one of the center stages in the, in the Christmas story that often goes under the radar. But secondly, we'll see that in the, in the family tree of Jesus, there definitely was a scarlet thread, a, a kind of an imperfect undercurrent that runs throughout the story. And, and at this time of year where there's so much pressure on making everything perfect for the holidays, perfect for Thanksgiving, perfect for Christmas, we want to be reminded of the fact that it is actually the gift of grace given to all of us that makes imperfect things not only bearable, but lovable. And uh, this is the kind of message that we've got today. And I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, our text for the next four weeks, is unapologetically the most boring passage in the entire New Testament. It's the genealogy of Jesus. Pastor Mike said that uh, when he became a Christian as an adult, he didn't have a Bible at home. That seems unbelievable to many of us that have got dozens of them, but he didn't have one. So he went to a bookstore, and uh, he said, look, I'm looking for a Bible. And uh, they said, well, the only one we've got is this, and it was an authorized version. Uh, we read the New International Version, and authorized would be with all of these, and that was that type of thing, okay, really old-fashioned. And he said, look, I don't know anything about this. Where do I start to read? And they said, why don't you start at the beginning of the New Testament? And so he opened it to Matthew chapter 1, and he started to read all of those names. And he thought to himself, this is exactly why I didn't want to read this thing in the first place. But why did Matthew write this? Why does he begin to tell a story about a life-changing message that truly changes everything with a list of names. What we're going to discover today is that part of the reason he does that is that Matthew wants to show Jesus to be, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, he is, this is the son of David, the son of Abraham, okay? The legitimate heir, the legitimate Messiah. Matthew writes to authenticate the legal rights of Jesus to be the Messiah. But what we're also going to notice is that he writes because there is a story that he wants everybody to know in their own hearts to be true. And this is a story of how God takes the imperfect, often the unlovable people of this world, and gives them the greatest gift that they could ever be given, the gift of grace. Heard about a, a woman who wanted to throw a party for her friends to celebrate the birth of her newborn child. This wasn't her first child, this was the third. She'd done it before, and she thought, I'm going to make it easy this year. I'm just going to invite a number of uh, people around at the same time, rather than going through that steady drip of people coming all of the time. Any of you who've had kids, you, you'll know what that can be like. So she decided to do that. So she got up in the morning of the party, and, uh, and she took the two kids to school, and then she dropped the baby off for her mum because she wanted to get the house in order for everybody to arrive. The only problem was that there was so much to do. 
And so she kept working, working, working. She looked at the clock and she realized, my word, in 30 minutes they're gonna be here. So she got upstairs, got showered, got ready, the doorbell rang, everybody came in. Everything is going great until one of her friends turned to her and said, hey, where's the baby? <laughs> and in that moment, she woke up to a, to a realization that it is far better to have an imperfect home with all of a family in it than a perfect home when the kids are not there. There's so much pressure that goes into making the holiday season perfect that we can actually miss the meaning. I used to debate the size of our Christmas tree with it, but I also used to debate when to put it up. You see, in Germany, believe this or not, they don't put up the Christmas tree until the morning of December the 24th. Well, on years like this, this is cool for me because there was church every seven years on the 24th, so we'd have to do it earlier than Christmas Eve. But Vipka and I used to debate this, the size of the tree. I, I didn't care about the tree. It could be an artificial one. Vipka was having nothing to do with that. And then we both kind of woke up to the realization, it doesn't matter the style of the tree or the size of the tree because to our kids, every tree is 15 feet tall anyway. See, the best... Christmas and the best gift around any Christmas tree is actually the sight of a family wrapped up in each other. Christmas isn't about reaching out to open presents. It's about opening our hearts to the gift of the people that God has presented us with. And what we're going to suggest in this series is it's far better to have a, a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. Yes, that's what it is if you didn't know. An imperfect Christmas tree, an imperfect home with decorations that aren't as perfect as you would like, then it is to have the best tree with all the Martha Stewart trimmings, and if you don't know what they are, you have been blessed. And have so much stress. The best type of Christmas gift is the gift of people wrapped up in each other because they've learned to love imperfect people and celebrate imperfect families perfectly. And when you dig into the, the list of names in Matthew chapter 1, that's the message that you discover. You discover that in Jesus' family tree, there were so many imperfect people. If you dig into the names, you'll see that there are some great people there are some people we know hardly anything about, and there are some people who are really messed up. And it's as if Matthew writes this way intentionally, and that's what we're going to suggest through this series, because God wants us to know that we don't need to be perfect to inspire other people. Rather, we inspire people by how we deal with our own imperfections. And Matthew wants us to realize that this is at the heart of the Christmas story. God loves imperfect people perfectly and welcomes them into his family. And this Christmas, we want to say, why don't we give our family that same gift? What would it be like to give our imperfect members of our family the gift of grace? You know, when I met Vipka, I came home and told my family and friends that I had met the perfect woman, the woman perfect for me. My mother smiled. 
Never said anything. Then we got married and I discovered that she was imperfect. But I also discovered that I loved her even more as a result of it. Why? Someone has said these words. You come to love not by finding a perfect person, but by learning to see an imperfect person perfectly. I love that. You come to love not by finding a perfect person, but by learning to see an imperfect person perfectly. You may have come in here today with a backstory on getting everything ready that's stressful. You may have come in here with a backstory that makes you feel unlovable. You may well have come in here today with a marriage in crisis. You may well have come in here today with so many things that aren't perfect. But God wants you to know that you are not awesome, but you are flawsome. Flawsome, an adjective, a person who embraces their flaws and knows that they are awesomely created nonetheless. It doesn't matter what your backstory is, God thinks that you are flawsome because God can see past your imperfections to love you as imperfect as you are, perfectly. What would it be like this Christmas if our Christmases were flawsome, not perfect. Maybe you are going to have so many people around, and maybe your home is too small, and you didn't manage to get the house you wanted through selling yours that could accommodate all of your family. So maybe you, like one member of our congregation told me, actually celebrate the Christmas season and the holiday season by laying, moving your cars out of the garage, putting all of these kind of fold-up tables and these white plastic chairs, and you eat off paper plates. Hardly the ideal, but it's flawsome. Because beyond the imperfections of the environment, there are a group of people who know that they're wonderfully and fearfully made, and they celebrate it. Maybe you're not looking forward to Christmas because you're going to be on your own. You know, your kids have decided that they're all going to the in-laws at the same time. The peril of the holiday season, right? And, and you're going to battle loneliness. You're going to battle feeling on your own. What would it be like this year, if you give your family the gift of grace and realize, hey, as flawed as this Christmas is, it's awesome because God loves me and God has invited me to be a part of his family. You see, celebrating Christmas, and this is the point of the genealogy in Matthew 1, and I believe this with all of my heart, isn't about celebrating it with perfect people looking into a perfectly decorated tree. Now, enjoying Christmas invites us to appreciate how God invades our imperfect environment perfectly, reminding us of how awesome is a grace that loves imperfect people perfectly. That's what I love about this genealogy that we all too often just float over. It is full of imperfect people who, although flawed, lived as perfectly as they knew how, and God loved them. Now, this is especially true of the four women mentioned in the genealogy before Mary. These women certainly weren't perfect, but they are listed in this genealogy because despite their imperfections, 
Their scandalous and surprising actions foreshadow the surprise and scandal at the heart of the Christmas story. See, over the next four weeks, we're going to look at the, the backstories of some of the women in the genealogy. And the key question that people ask as they read this is, why are these women in the story? And the answer that we will discover is that their actions, their imperfections, foreshadow the central figure in the Christmas story, a story in its infancy, a young, unmarried virgin by the name of Mary who claimed to be with child, not through her actions with men, but by the actions of God himself. What a scandalous story of an imperfect choice for an incredible tale. These women are listed because they show us that what God did at Christmas in accepting and even choosing imperfect people, He'd been doing for centuries. And the good news is, Matthew wants us to know, He does it today as well. You see, the presence of these women in the genealogies is rare. It's not without precedent, but you don't typically put women in the genealogies. Now, one book in the Old Testament that's full of genealogies is Chronicles. Chronicles in the Old Testament has some ex interesting examples of women in the genealogies. We can look at 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, here's the point. While the role of women was fixed and fairly rigid, Old Testament history is littered with examples of gender boundaries being blown wide open with divine consent. And that means that this gender boundary being blown wide open brought divine blessing, not divine retribution. And so by including these women in the genealogies, God is making it clear that in the Christmas story, right from the beginning, that the kingdom that is being established through Jesus is going to be so different to what everybody expects. One commentator, Blomberg, puts it this way. He says, already here, in the genealogy, Jesus is presented as the one who will ignore human labels of legitimacy and illegitimacy to offer his gospel of salvation to all, including the most despised and the outcasts of society. You see, the birth of the Messiah was both surprising and scandalous, and through the, the backdrop of setback, of struggle, and of scandal, God was working to deliver us a perfect gift Jesus. And so this genealogy of Matthew is the foundation for a scandalous story of how an awesome God of grace shows his love for a flawsome creation. Now, if we want to understand this, we need look no further than the women that are listed in the genealogy. And I'm going to look at two of them today, and we're going to pick up some of the backstories over the next few weeks as we head into Christmas. So we begin in verse 3. If you have a Bible, look at verse 3. We're going, to, we're going to encounter the first woman that's mentioned there. Now, let me apologize straight away for the way I say her name. It's got two vowels in there, the letter A, and Welsh people say them completely weird in comparison to all of you. So if you don't get what I'm on about, I'm on about this lady here called, I would say Tamar, but I believe you would say Tamar. You mess the vowels up, I try and stay consistent. That's the way I look at it. But, but we're talking about this lady here, okay? Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, 
comma, notice that whose mother was Tamar, comma, Perez, the father of Hezon, Hezon, the father of Ram. And so it goes on. It interrupts this break of a paternal, which is more typical, genealogy, male-driven, okay, to kind of put in parenthesis here this first lady called Tamar. That's a really interesting choice of a lady to insert in the genealogy. Because her story is told in Genesis 38. Her story is interesting because Tamar was the wife of Ur, and Ur was a bad guy. And so God is said to have punished him for his evil deeds, and he died. Now, the Old Testament custom said that if a man died with a wife, then the younger brother was supposed to take the wife marry her, and that all of the children that would come into the family would be raised in the name of the brother that had died. This was a way that Hebrew culture protected the weak and the vulnerable with no kind of social services and and housing and accommodation and everything else. This was the way that the ancient cultures protected the weak and the vulnerable, making sure that they didn't fall through the cracks. God didn't want anyone to be abandoned. What does the Bible say? God delights in putting the lonely into families. The most vulnerable were the widows. Read 1 Timothy chapter 5. The church is given specific instructions about what to do with widows. Read 1 Timothy 5. You'll even see that there was an Excel spreadsheet, if they had one, giving a list of criteria for what to do and know who to support and who not to. So, So this Old Testament custom, it may seem bizarre to us, but it was all about protecting the weak and the vulnerable. So it's pretty clear what Judah, the father of Ur, needed to do. He needed to give Tamar to the next son, but he doesn't do it. Onan, that's Ur's brother, the next in line, was supposed to marry Tamar. He refused, and guess what? He's punished and he dies. So Judah, the boy's dad, should be getting the point by now. Look, the law is there for a reason. You're not acting on the law. God isn't happy. Protect the widow. Protect the weak and the vulnerable. But he looks at this thing and says, there's something with this woman. Every son who comes into contact with her dies. He's thinking of protecting his youngest son, Shelah, rather than protecting Tamar. So Judah, fearing what would happen if he says no, looks at Tamar and says, hey, um, the boy's a little bit young right now. Why don't we wait until he's grown up? Right? Now, that seems a pretty good thing, but he was already old enough. So he doesn't do it. Now, the text in Genesis, Genesis 38, 14, tells us that Judah had no intention at all of allowing Tamar to marry Shelah. So nothing happens. Tamar is left vulnerable. Then Judah's wife dies. No suspicion on that one. The elderly, she dies. After mourning her loss, Judah decides to visit the men who are shearing his sheep. Now, if you've just lost your wife and you decide to come out of mourning, I can think of more grand places to go than to visit the men that are you know, kind of shearing your sheep. But that's what he decides to do. He makes this long track along this road. And, and as he's on the road, he sees Tamar, but he doesn't know it's her. You see, when Tamar hears that uh, Judah is going sheep shearing, he thinks she hatches a plan. She decides to take off her widow's clothes, which she would need to have worn until she was married, and then dresses up as a temple prostitute and sits beside the road. 
And as Judah walks down the road, he sees the temple prostitute, and he tries to kind of cut a deal. The only problem for Judah, he forgot his wallet. How convenient. No problem, Tamar says. Give me a ring, give me a staff, and that will do for now. Don't need to give me anything else until I'll, I'll give it to you back, right, when you, give me the, when you give me the money. And the goat was a part of this too. Well, anyway, Tamar disappears. During the act, she disguises herself. He doesn't realize who she is. She disappears, and he never is able to make good on his promise. Time moves on a few months, and word gets out that Tamar is pregnant. Judah goes absolutely nuts. He says, that's it. I'm done with this woman. Two boys of mine are dead. Now she's pregnant. The woman is a scandal. Burn her. Burn her. So Tamar is being led out to be burned, and she manages to smuggle the ring and the staff to a carrier who takes it to Judah, saying, Tamar wants you to have these. <laughs> and in this moment, Judah looks at the ring and the staff and says this, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. He doesn't go ballistic again. He realizes that he was wrong. And so, this is the lady that's included first in the genealogy of Jesus. It's a scandalous story of how men in power often desire women but do not value them. Tamar has learned or learned what many women in our country are now vocalizing, that men in power don't always value what they desire. This is a scandalous story that speaks into our world and into Hollywood, but it's there for a reason. This is what one commentator, Wilkins, says of this. Women had experienced increasing marginalization and even abuse within Jewish society. Jesus' line includes Tamar, a woman wrongfully denied motherhood by the deceitfulness of men. The women in the genealogy represent gender equality that had been denied them within much of Jewish culture. And from the beginning, Jesus came to restore the personal equality and dignity of women with men. Women who were desired and dumped. Women who were desired but never valued. That's a message that this country is learning all too well. What an imperfect backstory for the perfect story of Christmas. I wonder how many of you are in here today, fresh off a broken relationship that pains you, because you were desired, but not valued. You were desired, but dumped. I wonder how many of you are in here today where your family are jumping to the wrong conclusions about you, and your name is being dragged through the mud. I wonder how many of you 
have faced all of this and responded by saying things and even feeling things that you would much rather never have said and certainly don't want to feel. This is that less than perfect backstory to the birth of Jesus. Her story reveals to us that God's purposes are not thwarted by the unrighteous actions of others, but it's also a story that encourages us to persevere, to trust, and to be faithful. God knows what He's doing, even with you. Welcome to Christmas, everybody. This is the first woman, but it goes on. The next one is Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5. The next lady here, more familiar to many of us, is the lady with the name of Rahab. Look at the way it's written again. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This takes us back to Joshua chapter 2. This is that period where God's people are now under the leadership of Joshua. Joshua has been commanded to take the people into the promised land. They camped the other side of the Jordan River. Joshua 3, you remember, is when they were to jump in. They were at the water's edge. That's basically where they are. Well, in Joshua 2, they want to spy out the land. And so they send two spies to the city of Jericho to get a feel for it. It was a, a big city, a proud city, a strong city. And so two spies go in, and they actually find refuge in an unexpected place. They find refuge with a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And Rahab protects them. Even when the army of Jericho comes to Rahab's house, she says that they're not there. She protects them on the roof of her home. The army leave. The spies are about to leave to go back to Joshua. And Rahab says these words, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are, meet, are melting in fear because of you. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters. Hold on to that phrase, please. Mother, brothers, and sisters. Hold on to that phrase. It's going to be important. Spare, give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Look, I've helped you. Now, please, help me. Now, remember, she's a, a Gentile. Okay, and not only is she a Gentile, but she is a Gentile prostitute. And what she's asking here is not simply to be spared, but she's asking for her and her family to be grafted in, to be incorporated into the family of God. That's what she's asking for. And the spies look at her and they say, because you have been kind to us, we will be kind and gracious to you. This is the sign what we want you to do is we, we want you to take a scarlet thread and we want you to hang it out of your window. And she could look at this and she could have said, wow, what, what good is that? But she asked for a sign. A sign is a step of faith. She, she kind of hangs this thing out of a window. And as the Israelite army came into the camp, 
she was spared because she took the step of faith and hung the scarlet thread. Tamar and Rahab are basically two examples of imperfect people with questionable pasts who contributed to an incredible future of faith. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a few more of these. Women with backstories who prepared an imperfect world for the great gift of grace. And again, we put so much time and effort trying to get everything perfect for Christmas that we can often forget the meaning. We can strive for perfection and miss the grace that enables us to embrace the imperfect perfectly. And so, besides validating the legal rights of Jesus Christ to be the Messiah, the genealogy shows us how this gift of a Messiah would embrace imperfect people in perfect grace. Dig a little deeper into the genealogy of Matthew, and you would realize that he does this intentionally. This is an intentional ploy of Matthew to share the heart of the story of Christmas. It is so intentional because looking at the genealogy and where Matthew drew it from, we recognize that in order to include imperfect people with a scandalous backstory, he omits important people. He leaves important people out in order to bring a scandalous component into the story and the foundation of Christmas. Let's have a look at the way that the genealogy is written. This is as deep as we're going to go over the next few weeks, folks, so it's going to be quick. But when you dig into the genealogy, you recognize that there are three divisions. The first division is from Abraham through to David. That's verses 2 through 6. That is a period of 750 years. Some people are included. Some people are omitted. Then we go on to the, the second period here. The second division is from the time of Solomon through to the time of Babylonian captivity. It's from verse 7 through verse 11. That's a period of 400 years. From First Chronicles, we know that some people are included. Some people are omitted. Then we have the period from Babylonian captivity through until the time of Joseph. What's interesting is Matthew portrays Jesus as being the son of Mary, or Mary being, okay, the mother of Jesus, but he never says that Joseph is the father of Jesus. No, what we have in the first Christmas story is the first example of how God views the blended family. Joseph is the first example in the New Testament of a man who accepts the responsibility to raise a child that wasn't his. What an example of faith that is. So we have three divisions here. Now, this, this division is actually intentional. We see this from verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to Christ. Now, 14. He's preoccupied with 14. Why? We don't know. 
Now, after the first service, I said, we don't know. Somebody came up to me and said, hey, do you know the Jewish Torah says number 14, 7, 14, 42, number of perfection? And I said, yeah, that's one of about 14 different theories on this one. The point is Matthew doesn't tell us. He's preoccupied with the number of 14, and we don't know why. We can guess why. We just don't know why. But what's really fascinating in all of this is... To get this number 14, he takes kings out, important people out of the equation. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, where some of this section comes from, he omits Ahaziah, Joash, Amaziah, to name but a few. He just removes people. But in removing people, he creates room to include people. It's intentional. And so the question we ask is, if you're writing to a pattern of 14, which you demands, that, demands you leave people out, why do you include people like that? Get the point? This is intentional. The second thing we notice is that patterns are broken. This is intentional. It's so intentional that he includes the element of scandal and surprise why we know to lay the foundation for the scandal and surprise of God's choice of a young virgin unmarried by the name of Mary. But there's something else going on here. It's not just about that because important patterns are broken. Now, when we looked at Joshua chapter 2, the words of Rahab, I asked you to remember a phrase mothers, brothers, sisters. Patterns are broken. Why does Matthew include these people? There's a pattern. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. This is the way the pattern starts, the division starts. We go on to verse 11, Jeconiah and his brothers. Now we've got the pattern here. It's repeated twice. There should be a third time for the third division. But there is no third pattern. Why? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my mother. This is intentional because patterns are broken. Matthew writes this way because he wants everyone to know that the real gift of Christmas is a gift of grace. The gift of grace to imperfect people who can never live perfectly enough to satisfy the holiness of an awesome God. And so Matthew writes this way, including the scandalous in the story of Jesus, because even the scandalous, if they do God's will, which is to respond in faith to Jesus, become the brothers and sisters of Jesus himself. Why do you think this is so important to Matthew? It's actually a, a pretty easy answer. It wasn't just his own belief system. It was his own experience. Every day, a Jewish male would wake up, and according to history, they would say these words, Father, I thank you 
that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank you that I am a man and not a woman or a tax collector. The first gospel is said throughout history to have been written by Matthew, the tax collector, someone with an imperfect backstory who had no right on the basis of anything he had ever done to be included, not just into the family of God, but to be made and called and purposed to be a follower of Jesus. Matthew writes like this right from the get-go because it's his own experience. He has received the gift of grace even though he didn't deserve it. See, the flaws of the imperfect are perfect to the God who loves them. What would it be like if we kind of made our way to Christmas remembering that the only reason that we have been included into the family of God at all is not on the basis of any good that we have done, Paul says, because otherwise we could all boast, but it's only on the gift perfect gift of grace through God's Son. What would it be like if we would take that ability that God has to love the imperfect perfectly and channel it into the way that we journey towards Christmas? What would change? Maybe what would change is the way we feel and deal with the pressure about having the perfect Christmas. Maybe what would change is the way we're going, we view Uncle Tom, who always chews with his mouth open every time he comes around for Christmas. Maybe what will change is that we'll start to treat those people we find it very difficult to deal with over the holiday season with a lot more grace. And maybe, just maybe, that gift of grace to an imperfect person will be the gift that will open their eyes to the love of God that loves imperfect people perfectly. But here's the deal with all of this. In order to enter into the spirit of Christmas in this sense, we have to take a step of faith. We have to say, look, I not only believe that Matthew was intentional about writing the genealogy this way, I also believe that God wants me to celebrate Christmas this way. And I recognize that it's written this way because this is not only Tamar's story and Rahab's story and Matthew's story, this is my story too. And recognizing that fact, what it asks us to do is to basically take the, the scarlet thread and to take a step of faith. Believe that this thing is true. That God's love allows us to love the imperfect perfectly. Take that step of faith. See all the stress for Christmas as we take that step of faith disappear. And, and the real question is, what do you need to do? What's the step of faith that you need to do? But whatever it is to enter into the true spirit of Christmas, we kind of have to push out this desire for perfection and realize that the, the most perfect way to celebrate Christmas is by loving the imperfect the way that God does. 
And then whatever that means for you, recognizing that your table isn't going to be big enough, that your meal isn't going to be what you want it to be, that the gifts under the tree aren't going to be as numerous as you would like them to be, recognizing that there will be an empty seat at the table this Christmas, and maybe for the last few Christmases, that causes you pain. And maybe the act of faith is, as you decorate your tree, if you haven't done it already, if you have, go get a scarlet tinsel and put it over the tree and say, God, this is my step of faith. And every time I look at this tree and I feel dissatisfied with my lot, I'm going to remember that the very fact that I'm a child of God right now is only because you have committed to love the imperfect perfectly, me. And so this Christmas, Father, in laying this down and in looking at this thing, I'm committing to do for others and to do in my world what you have done for me and for this world. And so I give you this, the disappointment, the pain, the desires, the expectations that have never been met, and I just ask you to help me celebrate this Christmas imperfectly, perfectly, in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. Let's go to God in prayer, shall we? Let's pray together. Father, what incredible depth there is to a passage that so many of us just fly straight over. But that passage tells us that you're shaping the story of Christmas intentionally right from the beginning. You are basically including people into this story that give hope for people like us. Father, we pray that we, as we journey to Christmas, we would not forget that we're a part of the family of God because you love the imperfect perfectly. Father, may you gift us the grace and the power of your Holy Spirit to do the same in our world that you have done for yours. May we love the imperfect perfectly. Whether that is people, whether that is places, whether that is situations, may we recognize that all of these things are flawsomely and wonderfully made. And Father, may we also realize that where we are right now is not where the story ends. Change is coming. Hope is coming. Life is coming because Jesus has come. Help us personalize that story and help it become more of our story in the days and weeks leading to Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.